Well, good morning, folks. For you who may not know me, I'm former pastor in New England for a number of years, and my wife and I moved down here in 2013, and here we are, Wallace Church, and it's a privilege to be able to read and open the Word of God with you this morning. I need a context for the verses that are in your bulletin, and the Holy Spirit's is better than mine, so I'm going to be reading from Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. If you'd like to follow along, please do so. Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, 13 to 27. On that very day, the day of the resurrection, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Literally, what is this talk you're throwing back and forth between each other? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our country, company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let us pray. Oh, our Father, we thank you for this gospel and for these words and for this privilege to spend some moments on this your day, the day we meet, the first day of the week, because Jesus rose this day. It is the Lord's day. And we would honor you by seeking to think your thoughts after you. So, oh, come, Spirit of Jesus, enable me to speak and us to hear as you have appointed for this day and this hour and you be glorified we pray for Christ's sake amen last Lord's Day we had the privilege to hear Pastor David Miner speak about a beginning passage in this gospel 
in Luke 2, in that only incident that we have of our Lord Jesus' childhood. And particularly, as a preliminary for this morning, uh, David spoke a bit about how Jesus came to know who he was himself. Because he had a human nature just like we do, started out in the womb as an infant and had to be cared for, it was utterly helpless. And he grew and he learned and he would have gone to the synagogue meetings and heard the, the scripture read and when we find him in Luke 2, he's where he would naturally want to be with a sinless nature with the capacity to observe God and everything around him, the creation screaming there's a God, holy, wise, powerful, and he learned. And through his teen years, through that decade of his 20s, going to the feasts in Jerusalem, hearing the law read, finding out his mission as it's recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. And he did this amid a Jewish nation that had one idea about what the Messiah was going to be, a principal idea, which is he would be a military champion, a victor, to throw off the fourth monster, Rome, after Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and establish a physical triumphant kingdom in Jerusalem as the center of the world again. And all that physical glory would come back to the Jews. And that's the context in which Jesus learned about something more of what the Messiah was going to be than what they thought. Suffering must precede glory for the Messiah. And it will pre precede glory for every Christian as well. We don't go immediately from our sin to glory. We pass through the struggles, the battles, the reality of what the Christian life is. And our Lord Jesus, who had no sin within, certainly experienced that. And how they could have missed the importance of suffering, it's hard to say. Their eyes weren't open to it. They had Passover, and what were they doing at Passover? They were killing an animal. They were putting blood all over the door. What was the whole tabernacle and temple service for if it wasn't to show them that without the shedding of blood, without pain, without death, there could be no life? And yet they missed it. And for us, as we think about how the Old Testament bears witness to Christ, and that's what Jesus does in these concluding verses of what I read in our text this morning, we often just focus on the sufferings and the passages which highlight that, like Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or the whole of the end of Isaiah 52 in the 53rd chapter, suffering servant, the precious servant of the Lord who must suffer what he does and is described there. But there's much more in the Old Testament about our Lord Jesus' life and what he must be and do. And this morning I want us to look at some of those. And my goal this morning is not to have you create 
if you're in the habit of doing this, another futile New Year's resolution about reading through the Bible. I don't urge anybody to make resolutions like that, particularly unless it's covered in prayer and with a sense of, I can't do this, or I probably won't do this, or the devil's just waiting for me to stop. But I would this morning want to induce in you something of what our Lord Jesus induced in those two disconsolate, wrecked disciples, walking, trudging the seven miles from Jerusalem back to their town, all their hopes crushed. Unbelief was responsible for it. And for us so often, in terms of coming to the Scriptures, to hear God's voice, to come with prayer and waiting on Him and expecting to be changed by what we read and think on, particularly if He is center, He is the center of what we read, we can be disconsolate and we can be powerless. And the Lord Jesus Christ has died and given us His Holy Spirit, not that we be powerless and go on in the same ruts and tragic cycles of being bound by sin, confessing it, and going right back to it. Oh, this word can enliven us by His Spirit, can inflame us exactly what happened to these two on the road to Emmaus, that they realized later. They didn't even realize what was happening to them at the time. But Jesus was setting the words of the Old Testament about Himself in their hearts, in their minds, and creating a flame inside them. So that they got up, they walked the seven miles back to Jerusalem in the dark to be able to say, the Lord is risen indeed. We have seen him. We have heard him. We have felt the power of his words. So what more is there in the Old Testament about Jesus? Well, what isn't in about Jesus in the Old Testament? Think, for example, of the four principal offices that that are there. Prophet, priest, judge, king, all of them. And what shall we say of those who held them? Well, some of them were honorable. Many of them weren't. Furthermore, they all died so that there was no continuance. And for the last 400 years, At the time our Lord came, there had been no prophet until John appeared. Silence. There was no king. The king was Caesar. And the priests were those in charge, and some of them were good men, some of them weren't. And as to judges, oh my. They were under the Romans. They were under Herod. Hardly something to be uh, encouraged about. And the Jews of Jesus' day, as he told them, is you search the scriptures because you think by doing that, you have eternal life. But the scriptures testify of me. They're about me. Well, what else here? First of all, I want us to see how sharply the Lord rebukes these two disconsolate disciples. This morning in our class, we considered Job, 
and how Job isn't responded to by the Lord in the way we might think he should. We have ideas about what God ought to do so often, don't we? And he disappoints us because we're not on his page. And in the case of these two disconsolate disciples, their problem was they had focused only only on a part of what was to be the case with the Messiah, something future, the glory. And it had been shattered because their idea had been shattered because it was partial. It was wrong. It was ignorant. And so the Lord Jesus heals it. He heals it by opening for the space of probably two hours. I don't know where he joined them on that seven-mile trip, but walking at a leisurely pace, it would have taken at least that. And so they got a two-hour sermon from the Lord Jesus himself, about himself, from the scriptures. And how dedicated he was to them. As you remember, when he was tempted, he didn't make up an answer. He simply used verses from Deuteronomy, even just restricted himself to one book. Dear friends, believers this morning, the scriptures are sufficient or nothing is. To turn to something else is to turn to what cannot satisfy, will not feed your soul, will not guide you, will not convict you of your sin as it really is. And when you come to see it and in despair, it will drive you to Christ. There you'll find solace. Nowhere else. What else might the Lord have spoken about in that seven-mile trip? Well, we don't know. Uh, This is one of those scenes I'd like to be rerun in heaven. Like what Paul was thinking, Saul was thinking in those three days and three nights when he was blind in Damascus, having seen the risen Christ in his glory at midday in the Near East, and that sight of him blinded him. What was he thinking of as he went through in his mind? How could I have missed this? Where is it in the Old Testament? Where is he? And he found him, and he learned how to preach him from the Old Testament. I mentioned Job. We spoke of him this morning. He starts in prosperity. He ends in prosperity. But what does he go through? Suffering. Terrible suffering. Unexplained suffering. Our Lord Jesus Christ comes to the earth from an eternity past in the presence of his Father and the Spirit. Nothing else was there. God himself being sufficient unto himself from eternity past until in his decree, in the timing of his decree, and he had to create time for it to even exist, he said, let there be light. He made things. He created them by his word. And so Job and others suffered things they didn't understand. Joseph, let's think of the life of Joseph. It's one of my favorite parts of the Bible. The book of Genesis, as you may know, is driven by a little phrase that says, these are the generations of, you see the first one in chapter 2, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and we have those little titles all along in Genesis, and the last one says this, chapter 37, where Jacob was dwelling in the land of his fathers, 
These are the generations of Jacob. The next word in the Hebrew text is Joseph. Joseph is the real explication of the God of Jacob. He takes it far beyond even what we learn of God's faithfulness to Jacob in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty. Joseph, his father's favorite, he gave him a coat. He had dreams, Joseph did. And he told those dreams, and some will find fault with why he told the dreams. The dreams were God speaking to people in those days. How would they know what God was saying to them if they didn't reveal what he said? In the dream, Joseph was going to be first among his brothers. And in the second dream that he also revealed to them, he was going to be first even of his parents and of everybody else. And how his brothers hated him. We read in John 7, even Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. As if we could be surprised, here he is in his public ministry, and all those years, those childhood years, those teen years, those years in his 20s, his perfect life was nothing to them, evidently, but something that revealed their own sin, their own hard-heartedness, and he persevered through it. No doubt in kindness and graciousness. Joseph suffered, and when his brothers had the chance, they knew what his dreams meant. They knew his dreams meant that they were going to serve him in some way. They sold him into slavery, and he was taken into Egypt and given prominence because Joseph, we don't read these words, but he had to take this, that God was involved with this because when he was tempted to commit adultery with the wife of the man whose house he was managing, he said, how can I do this against your master? How can I do this against God? And he had that sense of the holiness of God. Well, he was thrown in prison. You know the story. If you don't, please read it. It's so important. Genesis 37 and following. But the Lord was with him in prison, and he was put in charge of it. And when he interpreted the dreams of someone who was restored back to Pharaoh's right hand, when Pharaoh had a dream, this man remembered two years later that, oh yes, there's somebody in prison that can maybe help you with your dream. And so Joseph goes from suffering to glory in a moment. Just like our Lord Jesus began his glory in a moment when he came out of the tomb. No more to suffer. And it's that risen Christ who's talking to these two on the road to Emmaus spreading the news, where to find it, how to explain it so that you can go and tell others and live it and speak it before them. David had the same thing, and our pastor is going to be speaking about David. I'll only say that David starts out as a happy lad, taking care of sheep, incredibly powerful and fearless to have rescued a lamb from a lion's mouth. I don't think I would have even dreamed of doing that without a gun. He had no gun, but he did it. He was brave. And when he was called upon for service and he stands before Goliath in this terrified army from Saul's side, what is wrong with you is his mind. 
We have the God of Israel on our side. He has nothing. He has sticks and stones. And yet in the service of Saul, he's turned into an outlaw. He must flee. And we read in many Psalms of David's anguish and the horror of what he experienced as an outlaw and someone subject to death at any moment. Would our Lord Jesus have known this? (laughs) Most certainly. And so his suffering had all these precedents from the Old Testament scriptures. But there's not only these histories of the saints, like Joseph, like David, like Job, but there is the importance, the precise importance of God's word that our Lord Jesus Christ, no doubt, uh, believed and practiced and lived in. And that's what he's saying to these two on this road. You have failed to understand all that the prophets have written. Think of Abraham in chapter 22 of Genesis. Abraham goes to Egypt earlier with his wife and lies about her because he's afraid of man. And the Lord's merciful to him and to us and to our salvation because if Sarah gets pregnant by somebody else, then redemption is lost because Sarah is the one through whom the seed is coming that God undertook. But later, after all the things that have happened in Abraham's life, and Isaac is finally born, the son of promise, and here he is, a young lad. And in chapter 22, God speaks to Abraham and he says, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am. Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac. And for the first time in the Bible, we read this word, him who you love, and go sacrifice him on a mountain that I will tell you. Abraham gets up the next morning. I don't know how he spent that night. But he gets up the next morning early, we read. Saddles a donkey. He brings the fire. He brings the wood. He brings the knife. He goes with servants. And they go three days' journey to this place. Three days to think about this. We don't know what was on his mind until he speaks to the servants. And this is what he says. You stay here while I and the lad go and worship, and we will return to you. Just that first person plural. How important was that? Well, the writer of the Hebrews thinks it's quite important because in speaking of Abraham, he says he believed that God would raise him from the dead if need be in order to fulfill his promise. And that's, of course, what happened. There they go, and Abraham is ready to thrust the knife into Isaac, who complies with his father, is bound, laid on that altar. The unspeakable act is about to happen when God calls out with a double name. And whenever whenever there's a double name in the Scripture, it's important. Moses, Moses, God said when he was at the burning bush. Absalom, Absalom, David in despair over his son. And here it's Abraham, Abraham. 
Don't touch the son. Don't touch the boy. For I now know that there's nothing you will hold from me because of your love for me. That's the fire, dear saints, that the scriptures ought to produce in us. The fire of a love that the Song of Songs speaks about, that penetrates to the depths of Sheol, in other words, as far as it can possibly go, to ignite us in a realization of what God has done for us in our misery, in our moment of life, in this fleeting thing that we have in, in time. He wants us to see the glory that's coming and persevere through the sufferings. Oh, there's so many others. I'm just trying to whet your appetite. If you have time this afternoon, look at 1 Kings 13 and 1 Kings 22 to realize how important it is to listen precisely and do precisely what God says, even if you're a prophet. But think about one last thing here. The physical ritual and the splendor of Solomon's temple and all its worship took the breath of the Queen of Sheba away. She stood before this magnificent building in the, in the Near Eastern sun with all that gold. You could hardly look at it. It would have been so brilliant. She saw the service. She saw the servants. She saw Solomon's table. She saw the order, the beauty of it all. It just took her whole breath away, she said. I have no spirit left. None of it kept Solomon from apostatizing. None of it preserved the truth and the worship as it ought to have been in the people of Israel. And so it was destroyed. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he does what he does, he's asked, by what sign will you give us that you're doing these things? And he says enigmatically, in John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. Now, they thought he was talking about the building. The text tells us he was talking about his body. Because the temple of Solomon, in all of its glory, was nothing but an emblem of the coming Messiah and all of his richness. The whole temple service, all of it, was about him the sweet incense, the light, the sacrifice, the prayers. And so, that we read this terrible, tragic lament that was read earlier for us in part from Lamentations 3 after the temple was destroyed. I am the man who has suffered so. And it can't be describing Jeremiah. He didn't go through all those things. He was actually cared for well by the Chaldeans. No, I see this passage as a picture, as it were, of Jerusalem. Crushed. Ruined. The temple gone. The city burned. All at a loss. And I'm on the road to Emmaus, and that's exactly what I'm feeling. It's lost. What hope is there? Christ suffered it. He suffered it in those agonizing moments and hours 
for our sake, that he might redeem us from all such suffering. And so, the Apostle Paul, as we turn to the New Testament for a moment, the Apostle Paul's testimony was, I want to be like Christ. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. We don't think that way. Paul, how can you think that way? Oh, it's just because of your sufferings. No, he said, it's better for you that I live. It's better for you that I keep on being what I'm doing for your sake. And I'm happy to do that. But to die, theologically, really, is gain for a believer. You don't lose consciousness. You lose consciousness in this body. You don't lose consciousness when you die. This body dies. You continue to live. You pass from any suffering, from any agony, from any struggle into glory. In a moment, just like that. To die is gain. But to live in this life, oh, Paul wanted to know the power of the resurrection. In Philippians 3, and what's the next words? The fellowship of his sufferings. He even went, on, went so far as to say, I fill up in my body what is missing of the sufferings of Christ. He did not mean that there was an insufficiency in Christ's work. He meant that in the body of Christ, of which everyone who is here, who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, belongs, there's sufferings that have been eternally decreed that will come to the glory of God, no matter what it is, because he is going to make sure that happens. He will honor it. And that's our hope. So when the Apostle Paul is preparing the churches for living, he doesn't say it's going to be wonderful. He doesn't say 2022 will be a great year. 2022, we won't have any more COVID. Of course, we don't know that that'll happen. We don't know that it would happen, that it would go away. 2022, no more tornadoes that will destroy whole cities. 2022, no more fires that will destroy a thousand homes in a matter of hours and then followed by snow and cold. 2022, that will leave Christians stranded in horrible places, suffering under barbaric regimes just for the sake of Christ. Well, my dear friends, in 2022, we can expect much of the same. Christ is with us. And we have the message. We have the hope of the world. It is, does not exist anywhere else. And it's recorded for us here. And so Paul, writing to those Thessalonians, says, we could hardly stand it not to be near you. We, we, we know you're suffering. We told you you were going to suffer for the name of Christ. And when, when Timothy came back with a report that you're doing well and you're thinking of us and you pray for us as we pray for you, that was life. What joy we had. What hope. So dear saints, that's our hope. And the reason that we need to be reading the scripture, I don't need to tell a lot of you that. You know this and you love it and you do it. May the Lord encourage you still. May you see more of Christ in it as you read it. We need it because we need it just like we need food. Do without food for a while, but don't do without the scriptures.
and find in them our Lord Jesus Christ in all of his fullness. And 2022 will be a magnificent year, whatever happens to us. Let us pray. Oh, Spirit of Jesus, come and teach us. Come and lead us. Come and help us throw down the idols. Get our feet out of the world. Get our eyes and affections off of perishing things. While we enjoy what you give us and are thankful for every gift because it comes from you. Our friends, our health, our loves. You're giving us work opportunities to serve you. Oh, we give you praise for these things, but supremely, oh, Spirit of Jesus, come and bind us closer to him with a greater sense of his greatness and yet his presence with us. Never to leave us, never to forsake us. And oh, Spirit of Jesus, for any here this morning, young or old, baptized or not, who don't know you, to whom my words may just sound like somebody who's excited about something that seems strange. Take hold of them this day, we pray. Show them who you are. Show them what they are so they can revoltingly turn from it to you and find in you forgiveness, grace, joy, peace, and purpose. And Lord, for all of us, Bless this church. Come upon us. Do your work here. And may we have cause to rejoice, to look back on this year, should you grant the whole year to us and say, blessed be the name of the Lord for what he did in 2022. And to you be all praise, honor, and glory now and forevermore, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.